0: Hello everyone, Joshua Gilliland here, one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. Thank you for joining me for another fun review of The Mandalorian, covering Chapter 7, The Reckoning. With me is Gabby Martin and Thomas Harper. Gabby, Thomas, how are you doing this evening?
1: I'm doing pretty good. I feel like I'm on a winter Star Wars planet right now with the amount of whiteout we have right here, but doing pretty good. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I have gotten completely off of the internet right now to avoid being spoiled for Rise of Skywalker. So I'm glad we have some new Star Wars to talk about before Rise of Skywalker drops on all of us. Uh, I will say that I'm considering suing John Favreau for intentional inf- infliction of emotional distress as a result of this episode. Yeah. I'm not quite over it yet.
1: We should bring in Deborah Chow as a co-defendant, and I will join <laughs> you as a co-plaintiff in that. Like this is I accurate. that, I am all about that. I, I, E, D, suit because it it is very true. It is it, it meets all the definitions, all the elements. It was very intentional,
0: and it's well directed, which is why she was given the Kenobi series because she's one heck of a visual storyteller. Well, let's get into the reckoning, which is chapter seven and it's the Mandalorian putting together his team in order to go confront Grief and the Imperials, and they refer to the Imperials as the Imps. <laughs> and uh, which it's like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Like in times of war, uh, you know, the, the opposing side gets nicknames. I this was just I wasn't expecting that so that was very interesting uh, that that they went there but we so we have these Imperials running around and we learned that Navarro was an Imperial stronghold and uh, the, the rebellion lost a lot of troops there it never fell and the Empire held it until the end of the war so the fact that we have you know the this Imperial remnant that's still functional Uh, are they in violation of the galactic concordance that ended the galactic civil war? And, uh, you know, Thomas, you're, you're probably the the lead when it comes to uh, star Wars trivia. Uh, Do you want to kick this off for us?
2: Yeah. And this is a tricky one because they don't fully explain the legal framework of the galaxy in this show. And in a way, I'm glad that they don't. I mean, like, I really want a, pres- a legal procedural drama where we get all this, <laughs> like, uh, these legislative debates and whatnot, but the galactic concordance, like you mentioned, Josh, that's the, that's the peace treaty that ended the war. Uh, everybody's, you know, knows Jakku and the big battle that happened there. That was sort of the, the ultimate final battle that happened. Um, In the Civil War, there was a lot of mop up after that, but this peace treaty gets signed in the wake of it and it doesn't wipe the empire out completely. The the rebels were faced with the choice of waging a decades long war to clean up every little bit of the Imperial Navy and Imperial Army. And that's wasn't really, uh, you know, a good option, a doable option. So they struck a balance and what this peace treaty did, it didn't wipe out the military, but it did defang the empire and it cordoned them off to a section of the core, uh, core worlds and the inner rim, minus Coruscant. The empire had to give up Coruscant, the traditional capital. Navarro is not in either of those places. And certainly the empire that was left at the end of this concordance was not one that had any capability to wage war. And so it begs the two questions. A, was the Galactic Concordance even a valid legal document? Because the person that signed it for the Empire, if you remember from the prequels, uh, the, the uh, Emperor Palpatine or Chancellor Palpatine's right-hand man, the, the blue guy, uh, Massa he's the last guy left standing after the Emperor you know, dies in, on the Death Star. And he takes up this ridiculous title uh, in the emperor's absence. And so he's actually the signatory of, uh, of this document on behalf of the empire. And, and I would kind of argue he didn't have any authority to sign this in the, in the first place. I don't know what the, I don't think he's like the, the U S equivalent of the, the vice president where he would step up into the emperor's shoes. But I think there's a problem with the legal framework of this peace treaty, but assuming it's valid, I think there's an open question that Moff Gideon and the client are operating way outside the boundaries of it.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, the German surrender at the end of World War II, because that was Admiral, was it uh, uh, was the guy in charge of the German Navy was the guy who, you know, threw in the towel.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it, like, imagine Germany having uh, active, states under control of of like regional governors in places like argentina or siberia or you know again some like far away remote isolated places that that could be self-sufficient siberia wouldn't be one of those but you get the idea of of uh they could remain in operation and when we see the 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 moff show up uh all of his troops have clean armor and he has a smashing, you know, tie fighter that he arrives in. And it's like, yeah. Uh Gabby, what what are your thoughts because you did a lot of research on this of would uh like, you know, this this regional governor even be subject to the terms of the concordance?
1: Yeah, so um I mean, it again, it goes back to the idea of whether the the document is valid. And and I, I think it goes back to our original debate of what the power structure is in you know especially these outer rim areas because it, it's like you said if, if you have something that's so remote and i mean obviously they know as we know from the first episode that you know the the empire has fallen um that you know imperial credits are no good that the new republic is forming but the new republic's kind of a joke um so it it's almost this kind of lawless area, and it, it's if there the issue is if there is anything to be enforced on them, who's going to enforce it? That's that's the real issue is is what body you know is is going to enforce on these kind of outer rim you know loyalists, if you will, um, you know that are still operating with the same amount of authority they had. Um, when the Empire was at its height.
0: This raises the the issue with Moff Gideon, and I absolutely love this villain because he, he's, he doesn't have a British accent. He's, he's different than the other Moths that we've seen in canon, and uh, he, he does have a nice swagger about him.
2: And, and a nice he- cape
0: in an ice cape and he had no problem executing other Imperials because he thought they screwed up. So that's telling as well of you have something I want. Well, does, uh, could he be classified as a war criminal or brought in on charges of one? And you know, Thomas, if you want to put on the Jag hat, what are your thoughts on that?
2: So it's, it's tricky because we don't know anything about Gideon um at all the the when we talk about the galactic concordance what it did with the existing imperial military commanders was to say you've got one option and that's to throw down your arms and not fight you don't have to be a member of our team but you can't keep fighting and those that refused to do so so the the folks that went off into the unknown regions and and you know laid the seeds of the first order they were all uniformly declared war criminals and I, the concept here is is a little bit funny and it it's funny in real life too not not like a haha way but just sort of like a legal quirk because it begs the question like what gives the emperor excuse me what gives the rebels the authority to declare that right it's it's a bit of victor victor's justice and that's sort of how just how it goes historically right in the the wake of world war ii the nazis lose uh japan loses and who sets the rules and gets to decide who is and isn't a war criminal as far as accusations go well it's the allies um you know they ultimately choose to give some measure of due process for those folks but to the victor go the spoils and to the new republic goes the the legal authority, so to speak, of being able to declare who's who. And so, you know, absent some other authority there, I think Gideon is going to be outside the bounds of this treaty that the empire has agreed to. And, and he's going to have a mark on his back as he continues hostilities. And Josh, you've mentioned this in probably other podcasts, not the Mandalorian podcast, but there is there is a war crime like a crime against peace, just a crime of of breaching peace effectively, and if you know, I don't know what else Gideon is doing other than trying to hunt down a baby, which seems <laughs> pretty bad, but you know certainly he's got military forces under his command, so at the at the very least he could be brought up on those charges
0: It'll be interesting to see what the final episode brings with him, because his troops looked well maintained. The TIE fighter looked um, not just operational, but again, shiny, new, well-maintained, mm-hmm. yeah. which means that there's sources of funding that he could still have an operational you know, regional government. And if that's the case, are they just fascists? Which would be a horrible place to live, but are they committing you know, war crimes? Like that's, that's an interesting question. Uh, wouldn't want to live in that neighborhood. And the, again, the fact that he basically ordered an extrajudicial execution of the client and you know, eight other stormtroopers—that's not good. I mean, that—that's not a good sign and indication of how he runs the show. I mean, he—it's—it's uh, it's very Tarkin-esque. If, if Tarkin was just a little bit more moody and just <laughs> bumping people off. I mean, it's more Vader-like with, you know, the force choking. Yeah. So, it, it's, uh, I, I like having a, a good bad guy, and this, he's truly bad. Well, let's get into the issue of Blurgs, and I don't know about YouTube, <laughs> but I would like a Blurg now. I I would love her and raise her and take good care of her, uh, that they, they they look fun.
2: It's like riding through the the drive through at McDonald's on your blurb. I'll We're have a hamburger come. and a Big Mac for my girl here. <laughs> yeah,
1: can can we call back the days of like '90s, early 2000s marketing where they would just randomly, you know, have somebody pull up to McDonald's on a blurb to market The Mandalorian. <laughs> that that's that's the kind of marketing I want right now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> They, they are, they are awesome. And taking them from their home planet, and I thought we learned the name of that, uh, something seven, to Navarro, which is a very Southwest, Western type, type name. So again, I really do like leaning into the Western issue. Uh, This raises the issue of you're importing an animal from one planet to another planet. We have rules against wild animals being imported into the United States from other (laughs) countries. Uh, Other countries have the same thing. Uh, It raises issues of, is a blurg a wild animal or domestic? uh, Because it can be domesticated. (laughs) And we've seen them in the Clone Wars on, on Ryloth. But elephants, you know, people can ride elephants. That doesn't mean that it's a domesticated animal. That's still gonna be viewed as a wild animal. Uh, Gabby, did, what are your thoughts on this?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I did a d- bit of a deep dive into this. I didn't know all the kinds of importation rules to um, animals, and and specifically, I I kind of viewed the blurg as a type of equidi, which is um, you know a horse, a type of horse. It can be horses, donkeys, um, you know, a- a- anything basically, you know, zebras. There's apparently a, a whole host of hybrids of these types of equidae. So um, if you're interested. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, so so the first thing you would need if, if we're considering um, you know interplanet or planetary to planet to planet importation as, as kind of a more international uh, importation and exportation as opposed to you know crossing state lines. Um, you would definitely need a Certificate of Veterinary Inspection, or CVI, which is generally required um, or in some form um, by authorities, regardless of the country you're entering, um, at the arrival destination. This is a document by, signed by a veterina- veterinarian um, you know, that says the animal is free of diseases, that they're healthy, um, and if they're not healthy, what they're you know, diagnosed with. Um, and it prevents diseased animals from freely being transported into the country without, you know, authorities being aware of it. Um, and if you are traveling internationally, the CVI um, is usually required to have a federal endorsement, um, which would be done through the Veterinary Service Office of the USDA, Health, Animal Health Inspection Service, um, which is a thing. Um, and then you may also be required, since you are moving you know, animals are considered cargo, so you're you're importing and exporting cargo the same you would with shirts or, or any type of um, personal property. Um, so an import permit may be required. Um, and specifically when you're transporting animals, um, designated ports have to be used. You can't just kind of roll up to, you know, take a boat into a harbor and pop off with your your horse. Like, you can't just do that. You have to go Through specific, specifically with horses, um, you have to go through specific quarantine stations um, and you have to make reservations in advance. Uh, And there are actually, here in the United States, there are actually federal and private quarantine facilities at all major ports of air, sea, and land entry. Uh, So on our east coast, our west coast, um, our southern border, um, and anywhere you would fly into the country. you know, New York, Washington, all of those types of places. Um, And that way they can quarantine horses that are diseased um, and prevent them from being spread throughout the country. So,
2: You would think with the way what, what we've seen of Blurgs, especially in that first episode where the Mando gets actually attacked by them, that planets would have or the New Republic in general would have an interest in these sort of laws because, you know, you bring a creature like that onto your planet it starts to breed, maybe interbreed, as weird as that probably is with some other creatures. And all of a sudden you got a pack of wild blurgs running around (laughs) that are charging at people and all of a sudden making life there on Navarro, kind of a living hell. And so, you know, the way around that, the way to prevent that in part is to to have regulations like this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we we don't need blurgs and dewbacks interbreeding and (laughs)
2: A blueback, <laughs> a do Will
0: would have four legs will it have the little hands like what's it 's the dominant DNA yeah. well we 're lawyers we don 't do that kind of work here, so we'll uh we 'll defer to our friends over in uh, uh, the medical profession for for that analysis of what the what that hybrid would would look look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But on that note, uh, let's, let's talk about Navarro, which is, again, a former imperial stronghold. And it's turning back into an imperial stronghold. And we have the uh, beat-up-looking stormtroopers in force there. And it looks like a form of martial law. Uh, Gabby, what, what are your thoughts on what's going on?
1: Well, I think one of the the things is that, you know, I mean, they even say it in the beginning. um, I believe when Mando goes to see um, Cardoon that, you know, they they've taken kind of despotic rule over the place. Um, So so this is clearly some sort of, um, you know, direct military control um, of the normal civilian functions, if there were any normal (laughs) civilian functions. On this planet, Um, it does seem as when we see it before. If it wasn't necessarily under martial law, um, that you know, it's kind of an outpost town. Um, Really, the bounty hunters guild are the only people that really seem to have a presence, and the Mandalorian, um, you know, clan has has a presence there. Um, But it, it really seems like this outpost. So. If there was any authority, it got taken over by this Imperial remnant, um, which uh, theoretically sent in additional forces and kind of took over uh, when the safe house was attacked. So, um, you, you know, you do see martial law kind of arise when there is some sort of igniting disaster or, or seemingly igniting disaster um, that an authority figure um, and a figure in power can seize upon and implement martial law as kind of a way to, to bring peace and um, that kind of stuff.
2: You normally see it tied at the hip with governmental authorities. I mean, you know, martial law has various incarnations across the world and not every country implements it in exactly the fairest <laughs> way. You know, Pakistan is a great example of a country that if if it happens to be convenient for the army's leader, they'll just declare martial law, invalidate the constitution, suspend it. And, you know, the military takes control. And I think the better part of that country's history has been, uh, you know, under some form of military control and, and you know, arguably some form of, you know, pseudo martial law, at least, but always the common thread from place to place is this authority that, you talk about gabby that uh there's some semblance of governmental authority that gives the military or or, you know whatever element is declaring martial law the ability to to enforce this here in the u.s it's not absolutely unheard of that martial law is declared but it's exceptionally rare i mean the suspension of something like as huge as habeas corpus is is a really really big deal so here i think you would have to have sort of a you know, a 9-11 or or style emergency or, or, you know, something on the order of a a really large uh, storm, you know, hurricane or something like that to to see any any form of this. Because it is a big deal when the military takes control of of civil functions. I wonder whether Navarro is under anybody's authority, whether it's so far out there and such a backwater that the New Republic doesn't really you know certainly navarro doesn't seem to have a central government so there's nobody to say hey we're going to be new members of the new republic and you have this vacuum there so you know i don't think the client has any tangible legal authority to declare it but he's filling a vacuum there and you know at the end of the day who's going to stop him other than apparently moff gideon (laughs) another bad guy with bigger guns
0: yeah the I did some research on this uh, for after Godzilla 2014 and in our experiments when we've had martial law you know fall into uh, San Francisco 1906 earthquake that martial law was declared uh, because there was looting there was bad things happening and and uh, you know there was an order from the mayor that looters would be shot or uh, civil war Uh, there Mm -hmm. were incidents during the civil war Uh, Hawaii was under martial law, I think until 1943, after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, that went up to the Supreme Court because they basically kept martial law enforced for too long. It's like martial law is permissible, at least in in our view of of the world, if there's a massive incident and government can't function because of said incident. On the World War II example, you know, like the courts were open, governments were open, city, local governments were open. There was no reason to have martial law still in force. So like the case where somebody was arrested and I don't remember all the details with it, but it was like, Mm -hmm. hey, we're done. Like, you know, it's time for this to end. And, And, you know, when we look at what's happening in Navarro, This is more like pure military rule of might makes right, and we're in charge now because we want this child.
2: I like that they have clearly the the top-end Imperial remnant forces there, most notably the speeder bike scout who offers 20 bucks (laughs) What I like to think of as 20 bucks. if he's talking about Imperial credits, maybe it's more like $9 for Mando's helmet. <laughs> and Mando looks like he wants to just flamethrower the guy right there for just even suggesting it.
0: Yeah. There's uh, <laughs> you know, the, the scenes in Navarro where we see the troop transport pull up uh, Favreau had to have one of those as a kid. Yeah. And this is a, another episode of I had one of these. It was never, it was, it was come up by Kenner. It was never on screen. Uh, uh, Filoni put it into Rebels. By God, I'm doing the first live action one of these things and it's gonna <laughs> pour out troops. Like, and guys from the 501st having a gay old time getting to play extras. So, uh, that that's just awesome. But, uh, you know, we, we now have this issue with, uh, with grief and there's a, a, contract there's an offer that's the hologram and then there's performance and there, there are legitimate contract formation questions here. And Gabby, you, you did a lot of research on this. Could, could you illuminate us with, with your findings?
1: yeah i mean obviously you have have a very kind of stereotypical offer um when grief sends him the hologram um and you know he says if you want you know to make peace come come to navarro like we can settle this you get what you want i get what i want like we'll be good um so it seems that acceptance based on that offer acceptance of the offer is mando going to navarro right so Mando clearly accepts the contract. I mean, obviously with a bit of an asterisk because he does a little, you know, detour to, to <laughs> go pick up um uh, enforcements as as Grief, call, as Grief calls them.
2: Subcontractors. Um, yes,
1: <laughs> subcontractors. <laughs> um so 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 there's the offer, Mando accepts it when he and his, his crew arrive on Navarro. Um and then theoretically the performance would be you know, this whole plan that they've hatched out, that, you know, they're going to go in, pretend that they're going to give up the child, Mando kills, um, kills the client, and then, you know, everything's kind of fine. Um, but what was withheld the entire time was that grief never intended for Mando or his crew to survive, that they were just going to kill them, take the child, and, you know, be done with it. Um, That they were basically trying to pull a fast one on him and and you know after baby Yoda heals him grief has a change of heart um, and he reveals this whole plan, but technically that makes the whole offer acceptance and and even the future performance void because there was never really a contract at least one half of the party never intended to perform, to uphold the contract in the first place. I mean, he intended to kill him and have this whole other plan in place. So I think you're, you're spot on in in the notes that, you know, this was, this was void from the get-go. Like this was not any sort of um, enforceable contract.
2: When we're right back to a point that Josh brought up, probably in our very first episode breakdown, which is, what are they even contracting about here it's mm-hmm. it's the killing of a poor old man <laughs> in a bar uh, no I mean you know whether he's an imperial or just a bad guy in general or not they're they're contracting over killing this guy so I think from a public policy standpoint this this contract, even if it met all the other marks, is what they would call void ab initio so just yeah. void from the get-go it's it's as if it never existed um because you can't contract to kill people that's
1: that's all it is it's it i mean the person who's being ki- killed is changes depending on which person you're talking about you know grief and his yeah. guild crew versus who mando thinks is being you know is the target of this murder for hire plot but it's murder for hire. That's, that's basically what everybody is there to do, is to kill at least one person. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's void from the get-go because there's this whole other thing and it's void on public policy grounds.
0: It takes self-defense to a real illogical conclusion <laughs> because from a self-defense uh, standpoint, you would need to say that the child's constantly in danger and that the danger's unending. Which he is, and it is. It is. (laughs) is. Easy. I I am the guardian at litem for Baby Yoda just
1: putting it out there. Like, I have self-appointed myself as as his guardian at litem.
0: I'll allow it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Blaster down. Put the blaster down. (laughs) Uh, So so there's that issue. Uh, Courts don't look at self-defense that way. A nation could. You know, with with going, hey, this is a problem. We're at war, so we're going to do a drone strike to take out the leadership of those who want to do us harm. Like we do that, we've we've done that for. You know, we're now entering the third presidential administration that that's done that. <laughs> Private parties don't do that. And that's a problem <laughs> when, when looking at this. So well, don't do that legally, yeah. we should, we should say. <laughs> yeah. The don't
1: do that legally get away with it.
0: <laughs> no, no, it is. I mean, there's an argument to be made, but it's not a good one. And uh, it, it just going like, well, it's totally lawless. So therefore we're going to just make a plan to kill this dude. And, and hopefully his henchmen decide to switch sides in order to get a paycheck. That's a very dangerous plan. It, it, it would almost be better if it was, hey, we're just going to take him out. Yeah, it's still murder for hire. But it's at least, it, it's different sounding <laughs> as opposed to, uh, there, there are a bunch of contingencies that have to, have, have to happen in order for this thing to work. So, let's talk about what uh, what uh, Cara Dune does in her free time to make some extra cash with the uh, Sorghum Fight Club. <laughs> and yeah, I, 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 I that lady could certainly break all my ribs, so I wouldn't want her mad at me. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's like when you have somebody who's who's you know this champion fighter, yeah, you're gonna have to have her show off, and it's a great choreographed fight. But, but let's talk about Sorgon Fight Club against a, that's looked like somebody from Dathomir, same
2: species as Darth as Maul. Zabrak, yeah. yeah.
1: Which I also, like, this may be me, and I haven't, you know, because we're doing this, we're doing a very fast turnaround on this. Um, but I may be the only one who thought that was a cameo by Ray Park, the actor who played Darth Maul. Like I don't know why I caught there's a shot of his face and it looks like Ray Park and like I would see them putting the horns on his head as like an homage to Darth Maul and especially with Rise of Skywalker coming out. I can I can see that. Like I don't know. That's, that was just
0: me.
2: <laughs> if it, he is the uh, the ultimate player of uh that species on screen at least. Yeah. That would be very fitting. Yeah. Uh, now you make me want to go back and watch it and like pause and zoom in obsessively. I I
1: I, I watched through the credits. I've searched, read it. Like, please, somebody confirm that, that I'm not crazy and that was Ray Park that <laughs> yeah, was totally cameo. Because I mean, who else would they put against cardune as as far as fight choreography? I mean,
0: yeah,
1: really. There's there's no one else, and that that was a pretty solid fight going on. So.
2: Well, from a a very technical legal standpoint, the first and the second legal rule about the Sorghum Fight Club is that you do not talk about the Sorghum Fight Club. Mm -hmm. So with that legal analysis concluded, we can move on. I'm I'm just kidding. (laughs) i so we'll two things We talk
1: about the gambling laws that's true that thing, because <laughs> that way we don't get into the, the the rules of fight club and the laws of fight club because that, that dance, not be tap dance
2: around it well i think for the fighting itself uh two things sort of stood out for me uh one the fact that this is in a bar raises questions about liability for the bar owner Uh, And and this sort of splits into two different avenues. One, assuming that you're either one of the two fighters, uh, so the Zabrak or Cara Dune, or you're just a spectator watching this happen and they don't exactly have a ring built. They're just sort of fighting in the middle of the... They just drag the tables out of the way. (laughs) Like, okay, here you go. Um, But if you're somebody at the bar there or a fighter and you get hurt... either participating in or watching this fight do you have some sort of tort claim negligence or assault and battery something like that and it you know it made me think about some of the lawsuits i I recall studying in back in law school during torts about uh nfl players that have sued the nfl Mm -hmm. over injuries sustained on the field and you know the the idea behind defeating their liability or or nixing the uh the nfl's liability for injuries is that you the concept that you knowingly exposed yourself to this danger so certainly a boxer can't sue his opponent for being knocked out and losing a tooth uh no more than he can sue the arena or anything like that because he's he knows the risks the law expects you to to size those up right So certainly the fighters couldn't do that. And I think from the audience's standpoint, they're in the same boat. They voluntarily chose to stand by this dangerous fight with two very large beings beating the crap out of each other. And the fact that you might get hurt, uh, I don't think you're going to have a legal claim against the bar owner. Likewise, bartender, well, any place that serves alcohol has to be careful in a number of states that have what are called dram shop rules. And this is a huge liability for for bars and places like that because what a dram shop rule is, is that if you are a place that serves alcohol and you continue serving alcohol to someone you know to be intoxicated or you should know is overly intoxicated, you are strictly liable for any injuries that that person causes. Here, I don't know that, I, it doesn't seem like either of the fighters are drunk. The Zabrak definitely could be drunk. I don't know, but Kira Doon seems like she's pretty sober, uh, and just getting drunk on ass kicking. Uh, but like if, you know, say a patron there had been overserved, gets upset that he lost all his money betting on the fight and starts beating up people or drunkenly crashes his speeder, uh, into somebody, uh, you know, a dram shop rule, a dram shop law would extend liability to that bartender. And that, you see lawsuits about this stuff using dram shop rules that's the first target because you know that that drunken person probably doesn't have deep pockets but Mm -hmm. that business probably does
1: yep and having having personally done a lot of pi work and and plaintiff's pi work anytime there's any indication that um, the other party may have been drunk or served alcohol um, whether it's an auto accident um, or any sort of altercation, you always, especially here in Connecticut, we do have dram shop rules and you always go after the bar because the bar has, has not just deeper pockets, but has a, probably a bigger insurance. Um, so so definitely, um, and given, given that that lady was so like the waitress from the, the last time we saw that particular, cantina um was so willing to just like do anything she was handed cash for um and just like throw things in she's like sure i'll give you a tankard of whatever i bet that woman has had a lot of dram shop <laughs> and dram shop lawsuits so that bar needs to reassess its, its its risk policy and probably not the best place to have to have a fight club yes you, you really don't like
0: alice there it's uh... nope.
1: <laughs> She's a very problematic figure for me.
0: Clearly, I <laughs> wow, rubbed you the wrong way. Uh, well, well, let's talk about uh, uh, Cara Dune and the fact that she apparently has some outstanding warrants mm-hmm. that if her uh, chain code is run, which is sounding more like ID or social security number, uh, it, it's, it's a form of identification
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, that she could be spend the rest of her life in a prison cell like what did she do and uh Thomas why don't you talking about the military side of this and let's go from there
2: well we talked before in episode three about what her deal might be and I speculated that perhaps she had not defected from Uh, the rebellion because she clearly has a deep loyalty there as we see in this episode, but perhaps she deserted. She just got tired of doing whatever kind of mop up jobs that she was doing. That wasn't what she quote unquote signed up for. And she just walked. And if assuming she wasn't done with whatever her service obligation was, being absent without leave or certainly, um, uh, leaving in that way, uh, deserting your post would be a crime in and of itself. And the problem with that crime, which I mentioned before, is that the Rebel Alliance military would not lose jurisdiction over her. So the moment that she got brought back into custody, she could be subject to court-martial. So you you see this all the time where, you know, I think a few years ago there was a Korean war veteran uh, that had defected to the North Koreans Technically speaking, if he were brought back into custody, he could be, you know, forced to get into to a uniform, even in his 80s or however old he was, and, and made to face a court martial. Uh, this episode sort of clarifies it. I don't know. It, it certainly doesn't rule out that she could have deserted, but it seems like her life choices after military service or what have caused her problems and i wonder whether she's been taking non-guild jobs that have caused her to a make use of her unique skill set you know and b in a way that uh you know probably violates the law because uh, she doesn't specifically say the new republic military is after her mm-hmm. just that the new republic is so certainly if she's this rogue vigilante she's like the the star Wars version of Steven Seagal at this point, like her fists (laughs) are registered weapons. Um, Yeah. It could be all sorts of things. We, we see a definite delineation between guild and non-guild and the non-guild job seems to be non-guild jobs seem to be the, the sketchy murdery ones. Maybe those are what she's taking.
1: Well, I think I kind of had a different take. I mean, because she mentions multiple crimes, not just one right. crime of, of desertion. So, and, and I think what you really see in this episode that you didn't see in episode three, apart from the ending, where she could have easily, um, you know, realizing that there was a bounty on the child, could have easily, like, scooped him up and, you know, left town. And, and I think what we're seeing is that she and and and, and Quill, Keel whatever, um, have have very strong moral, moral codes, just like mm-hmm. the Mandalorian, um, which is why he chooses them as, as you know, trusted companions. And I think she has a very strong moral compass. Um, and what might have happened with her is that she not only deserted for a difference in ideology, um, but may have defended somebody because we see that just just like Quill, she's, she's very quick to defend the child, to defend right. Baby Yoda. And, and she's very quick to defend others. So I think she may have defended, you know, an innocent civilian or innocent, you know, whoever, you know, in one of these mop-up jobs that she felt that what they were doing was in the wrong and maybe turned her weapon on people. She, you know, rebels, other shock troopers that she was meant to um, sort of alongside with. So. I can see that being her background as far as not just deserting but also having committed a crime um, against her fellow shock troopers which caused her to go on the run Um, and I can see her, you know, laying low in these kind of backwater towns just doing her fight club thing because I, you know, she she seems to to believe that the minute her name gets, uh, you know, her chain code gets run by anything, you know, She's gonna like you know a beacon's gonna go up and she's gonna get arrested, um and and she's gonna have a heavy, you know kind of price on her head. So I I can see her doing a major crime, in addition to her desertion against, um, the kind of military.
2: Yeah, and that could tie in. Uh, you bring up a good point about her possible backstory there because there's this whole back and forth that she has multiple times about covering up her arm tattoo Mm -hmm. and how it's a it'll get everybody's hackles up and and whatnot well nobody ever says anything about the rebel logo the the starbird logo she has tattooed on her cheek (laughs) um so i i really wonder whether that that tattoo as being emblematic of a jump trooper means that her unit was notorious for doing nasty stuff to imperials Mm -hmm. uh Or, you know, perhaps it's, you know, each one of those individual bars on the tattoo going around, like signifies an imperial killed or something like that to the point where it's, it's sort of a, it's a mark of, you know, pride, I guess, internally, but it's kind of a, uh, an infamous one that, that, uh, you know, maybe she's not as proud of, who knows.
0: Uh, Eventually, we'll find out because this is only the second time that we've seen her
2: true well
0: let's talk about uh one other thing with her she refers to the child as the thing as a thing now and (laughs) that's a change in personality from when we saw her in the third episode or excuse me fourth episode where she referred to the child as he so that's that was just weird get that thing out of here i Is that thing okay up there that was just different and i I don't know what caused that but we do have an issue with a minor driving a car (laughs) situation which is uh raises a huge issue with uh parental liability and and yeah uh i gabby i think you did a little of that first
1: off i should say that i feel completely vindicated for assuring you both that Baby Yoda was not okay being left in the (laughs) crest on his own. Um, Because clearly this kid knows how to operate the vehicle badly, but he knows how to press buttons. So he should not be left alone in a vehicle. because this is what happens. If he gets left alone by the controls, he takes over the vehicle, um, (laughs) and causes, you know, destruction and, 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 you know, flips them around the, the, the crest. Um, and so, yes, as, as, you know, both civilly, um, parents are liable for injuries. If your kid is unlicensed, um, you know, does not have a learner's permit, that's a whole nother ball of wax of issues of, you know, violating the conditions of the learner's permit. But if your kid is say 13 or 10 or whatever, that that wouldn't be able to get a learner's permit. Um, And they're operating a motor motor vehicle. This is any injuries, if they get into a crash or um, what have you, they are, the parents are liable for the injuries caused. Um, So in Arizona specifically, um, an owner of a motor vehicle who causes or knowingly permits an unlicensed minor, which here Mando clearly knowingly permitted the kid to be around all these buttons, um, to drive a vehicle on a highway, um, is liable along with the minor for damages caused by the negligence or willfulness conduct of the minor driving the vehicle. Um, so yeah, Mando's in a heck of a lot of liability for <laughs> letting Baby Yoda near shiny controls.
0: Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about IG-11 and I feel vindicated because I, I raised the idea that uh, uh, Crow uh, would fix IG-11 and that we would see him again. And so, I'm
2: so glad that you were right about this point. I might add.
0: <laughs> me too. I was like, Oh, thank, thank God. Uh, we get to see him again. So this, this raised the issue of, okay, was IG-11 a person? was IG-11 lost property or was IG-11 abandoned property? Yeah, uh, because if he's lost, like there could be a duty to like, turn it over for you know, the person who, the, the true owner to come find it. Is he abandoned? Well, that raises other issues. And then you know, there could be an issue with salvage rights from the Charter of the New Republic. And Gabby, did you do the, the deep dive on this? Yeah,
1: so um, I, I had a, a wonderful flashback to my property class. And, and the one thing they stress in property class um, that you'll hear over and over again in law school is that the law favors the using owner, right? The, the non-sleeping owner. If the owner is sleeping, whether it's real property or personal property, the law doesn't like that. They don't like property to just kind of sit there and not be used um so if at common law and this has been um codified in in different state statutes is a person who finds abandoned property which this is talking about personal property not necessarily real property which is its own set of rules and, and regulations um if a person finds abandoned property they may claim it they have to one first take definite steps to show their claim which i think You have that here with Quill taking IG-11, restoring him, and not not just restoring him to power, but changing his function. Right now, he's not no longer an assassination droid. He's now you know a a caretaking droid and a a protection droid. Um, So, and and he's clearly put a lot of time and effort to fixing IG-11, retraining him, reprogramming him. so courts, when they're looking at who to grant possession of uh, abandoned property to or mislaid property, uh, they'll look to the type of item, where it was found, um, and to determine whether the finder has a right to the, the item. So um, in general, the items will go to, um, the abandoned item will go to the finder um, unless it's, the find was made at a particular location. So you could imagine in this scenario, if the person who hired IG-11 was at that compound, which wouldn't necessarily make sense since IG-11 was there to take property from the compound, um, that there would be a claim, um, more of a mislaid property item. Um, But with lost property, you also have the obligation to turn, you know, to to try to attempt to find the owner, which doesn't seem to be the case here, um, but we also see from Queel's planet that he seems to be the only person there besides the Blurgs, and and this you know very mysterious compound. Um, so I don't know if there was any real sort of authority figure for him to kind of report the you know abandoned droid to and say, hey, you know, can you find the owner? you know, I think he was totally, you know, within his rights to kind of secure it, reprogram it, and use it.
2: And Josh, to your point, at this, as you set this issue up, there's a really kind of unique juxtaposition in issues here. uh, A, in how Queel views IG-11, which I think triggers Gabby's analysis. Quill clearly thinks that this is a, you know, just a piece of property. Uh, He's laid claim to it under, you know, whatever the charter of the New Republic is. He has Uh, spoken. Exactly. It is, it's a piece of, you know, stuff that he's able to program how he wants. I don't think, IG-11 sees himself that way. Uh, I, we don't have a ton of examples in the Star Wars universe about, you know, quote-unquote liberated droids, but certainly we know of another similar model, IG-88, that had liberated himself from the programming, uh, his programming. Forlom, the other droid bounty hunter that you see on the deck of uh, Vader's Superstar Star Destroyer in Empire Strikes Back, similarly kind of like freed himself from from his programming and and staked out on his own uh you know l3 from solo these are all droid characters that i don't think fit the neat bill of property uh, but of course the like very pragmatic ognath is going to see him that way
0: yeah a lot to unpack or even zero last episode
2: yeah exactly uh-
0: there there is the wonderful quote about droids in this episode where it's a uh, droids are a reflection of those who a neutral reflection of those who treat them and i thought that was uh, accurate that uh we he's he's nurturing in a father figure to ig 11 and teaching them to walk again teaching them basic motor skills versus uh you know somebody who uh like Han Solo, not necessarily known for being nice to C-3PO. <laughs> <Compared> to, <laughs> you <know>. a, the <laughs>
2: understatement of the millennium.
0: Uh, granted, there, there are reasons when you continually walk in on, when you're trying to make a move on Leia, but still, that's not a reason to, <laughs> to, to be that much of a schmuck. Uh, congr- Luke, who is actually very good to the droids, uh, because you know the Skywalkers are historically good to droids. So, a lot there. Well, which brings us to Mando's distrust of uh, the droids, and yeah, again, a lot to unpack mm-hmm. of of uh, you know this propensity. Uh, it's a character trait to to not like droids. And uh, Gabby, what, what are your thoughts on that and, yeah. and bre- breaking in some rules of evidence?
1: Yeah, so so I actually saw saw the propensity going the other way. So the way Mando treats IG-11 um, is very much the um, thinking that courts um, are trying to avoid having juries um, have with any sort of character or propensity evidence. Um, so the idea is that, um, propensity evans is the d- idea of once a criminal always a criminal which is very much where mando's head is in this episode that he's like ig11 tried to kill the baby once he's gonna try to kill him again like that he just and and he specifically tells Kara that because she s- says um you know you dis- dislike droids, you have a thing against droids. and He says, no, I have a thing against that droid. <laughs> um, and and his thing is very much, he tried to kill him once, he's going to try to kill him again, no matter how much programming has been done. You know, this this very anti-rehabilitation um, point of view. And so it's interesting, Josh, the, the quote that you mentioned right before that, Quill says that droids are neither good nor bad, um, or good n- nor good neither good nor evil and and that's really you know when you have especially criminal trials it doesn't matter how you know the person could have committed a crime every week of their life that has no bearing on the trial at hand the trial at hand is to see whether they committed the crime of which they are being accused so you know propensity evidence um, which is currently codified, or the, the pro, prohibition of propensity evidence, which is currently codified in Federal Rules of Evidence 404, um, which states that evidence of a person's character or character trait is not admissible to prove that on a particular occasion, the person acted in accordance with the character or trait. So if IG-11 did something sketchy, you know, or was accused of something later on, Mando couldn't bring up the fact that he had tried to assassinate baby Yoda in the past. That could not be used against him. The the fact that he acted one way at one time cannot be used against him now. Um, There are a few exceptions, um, such as when a pertinent trait is brought into issue Um, But that would still be subject um, to things like the rape shield rule um, and the 403 balancing test. Um, And in homicide cases, uh, prosecutors can offer evidence of victims' peacefulness um, if the defendant um, offers evidence that the victim was the first aggressor. Um, But very rarely does propensity evidence get in because, because of that tendency to um, prejudice the jury to, to get the jury thinking that because they acted one way at one time that they clearly are guilty in this case
2: well baby Yoda's propensity for peacefulness went right out the window in this episode
0: <laughs> <laughs> well he, he's clearly sees Mandal- the Mandalorian as a father figure and uh, thought he was coming to uh, his father's defense so mm-hmm. that that's my thought about what happens with Baby Yoda showing the ability to force choke uh, Cara Dune? And well, let, let's talk about you know capacity. Could this fifty-year-old infant be tried as an adult? And Thomas, you're a dad. What's your thoughts?
2: <laughs> Fifty is a grown-ass man in this galaxy. <laughs> there, I th- you know I I look at uh, I have an eighteen-month-old, so it's eerie. it's eerie every week how much uh baby yoda resembles my daughter in like some of the stuff that uh that he does like my daughter would have, have absolutely pushed every button on the razor crests panel and like thrown that ship into the ground um but what's interesting here i was talking with somebody else and and they pointed out that maybe baby yoda was just trying to to cheat uh, or to help Mando win the uh, the arm wrestling match, and not so much uh, actually hurt or kill Cara Dune. But I think either way, you have a, a serious capacity issue because no matter what your knowledge of this uh, this child's ages or the overall development, it's it's clear that it's at best a toddler, uh, if not infantile, and. Courts naturally delineate between um, you know how you are treated legally in terms of your your mental capacity and your responsibility for a crime uh, based on your age and i th- i don 't know of any case where a child that you know between the ages of say zero and three or four has been found mentally responsible for like attempted murder or something like that, and I, you know, the 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 problem here comes, like, can that child form the mens rea? Can that child form the, the the requisite mental element? Here, I think you can make the argument that to the extent Baby Yoda understood anything, he thought that his dad, his space dad, was in trouble, was getting hurt, and then you run into the, you know, the sticky wicket of self-defense i don't even think you get to that question though because I, I don't think there's a court in this country in this galaxy that's gonna hold baby yoda um, you know mentally responsible also i don't think fr- from a practical standpoint if you are the prosecutor that's trying to charge baby yoda with something there are going to be riots in the street to, to rival anything from uh you know rodney king and beyond you, you're going to be public enemy number one <laughs>
0: Yeah, the the DA and uh, miracle on thirty-fourth Street. Like you're just not gonna <laughs> sleep it on the sofa, it's not ending well for you. Uh but it does raise the interesting question of uh tort liability for parents of things that a child does. Mm-hmm. And in California we, we actually have one of the largest like return uh damage uh, uh limits. Of like if a kid like does damage to something, uh, a lot. Some states like tap out at like five grand, somewhere at like two grand. California's at twenty five thousand. <laughs> yeah, so uh, hey, yeah. swing for the fences here. Well, again, well, we're in the state where middle class is making two hundred thousand dollars a year. So you know mm-hmm. maybe it's just proportional. Uh,
2: What's that but, equate to in Imperial Credits?
0: Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure what, the, what it could be in Coaxium, let alone Imperial Credits, but it's uh, uh, a lot is probably the right answer. Uh, you'd live very, very well on Navarro. That aside, uh, let's, let's, Gabby, what are your thoughts on Mandalorian's uh, tort liability? Because um, he does say, no, no, she's a friend, like really fast. He, he goes full dad. Yeah. <laughs> Super quick. Yeah. We do not force awful.
2: choke in this household. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> so
1: I, I think, you know, the, the the important thing with tort liability as opposed to criminal liability is the idea that Kara would have to bring a suit, right? She'd have to sue for damages um, of her injuries and any, you know, medical expenses she had arising from her injuries. Um, if those injuries then did not get healed by Baby Yoda, um, as his apology. <laughs> but, but yes, it, Mandu, as, as the, the guardian of Baby Yoda, has a duty, um, specifically under the uh, Restatement Third of Torts, um, the duty is now um, of reasonable care, to others that the actor in a special relationship with another owes a duty of responsible care to third person, I'm sorry, not responsible, reasonable care to third persons with regards to risks posed to the other um, that arise within the scope of that relationship. So it's a duty of reasonable care. It depends on, that's, that's just from the restatement, which isn't necessarily codified anywhere. Um, Here in Connecticut, it's an absolute liability. Parents um, are liable for the torts of emancipated minors where the the minor willfully and maliciously damages property or injures any person. Um, In such cases, the parent would be jointly and severally liable uh, with the minor and up to $5,000. We have a much lower <laughs> cap here, um, and, you know, so again, the key issue here would be, as Thomas said earlier, proving that kind of willful and malicious element, because how willful and malicious can a toddler act? Um, you know, you'd, you'd have to prove the, I mean, clearly there was injury, but was it willful and malicious? That would be another um, element. But, with this type of absolute liability statue, like we have here, um, no negligence needs to be shown. So they- the- card would not have to demonstrate that Mando's parenting skills suck, that he has no kind of real, um, you know, parenting authority or, you know, no real kind of good parenting skills with regards to Baby Yoda um, she wouldn't need to prove any of that. You know, as long as she can prove that Baby Yoda's liable, triggers, um, Mando's liability as his guardian.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a lot there. Uh, of course, here, here's a fun one. We, this is the first time we've seen Force sealing on screen. I, I don't think we've ever seen it in the, anim- any animated series. Uh, it's, it's first time. Does Griff or grief owe Baby Yoda a life debt now? I would say he does. I mean,
1: you know, clearly, if if not some sort of life debt, he clearly has changed his tune um, with regards to um, protecting Baby Yoda. Um, he feel he clearly feels that there's kind of some quid pro quo. Um, to be quite topical, um, but he feels that you know Baby Yoda saved him um, from this poisonous death, um, and now he, in return, saves Baby Yoda and his space dad um, by killing the two bounty hunters um, that he had initially ordered to kill um, Mando. So, so I think there's at the the lowest kind of bar there's a quid pro quo, and I think depending on how things roll out in the next episode, it could be all the way up to a life death, if he feels that
0: strongly about it. Yeah, you... you, When you're about to die horribly from a poisonous venom and in in the most ironic way possible, with nothing can go wrong now, it's like, well, (laughs) that's... Never say that. (laughs) Smooth sailing from here. (laughs) No... Nope, uh, no, 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 uh, no I, I do, it, for me, this does highlight, I do love Carl Weathers, I'm the Gen Xer that it's just, I see Apollo, and I'm just grateful to see him having a ball, I could have done without the line of, is he going to eat me, I could have done without that, <laughs> I thought that was hokey and weird, we didn't need that, uh, that aside, uh, it was adorable
2: I thought and- he was going to end up like Chubbs and Happy Gilmore and lose another <laughs> hand damn dragon bit my hand off <laughs> and then for the rest of the episodes that he's in it just like comically gets knocked off and he has to go chase down his little wooden hand don't worry end. it's real sturdy <laughs>
0: gonna have to amputate that would have been (laughs) he he could have used the leftover best car to make yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) he's like jamie lannister at that point
0: (laughs) that would have been the best happy gilmore callback if they went there um it was like uh uh the was it vin diesel the um uh critic or god um was it night or dark oh, or
2: no oh man i know exactly what you're pitch black pitch black yes uh,
0: it reminded me of that with uh how it was shot that you we really don't get a good look at these beasts yeah. that are flying around that can pick up a, a blurk that that
2: really put a fine point on it
0: <laughs> like oh oh everyone's fair game here if it could if it can fly away with a blurg and uh yeah um,
1: I, I, I don't know to me this I, I couldn't help especially the second time i watched it it seemed like a really deep cut of the the writers commenting on on some sort of competition with game of thrones because it seemed like way <laughs> too game of thrones for, for a star wars universe it's like what do we have dragons now? Like what is this? Because they seem way too dragon like for for you know they you know made dragon sounds, they flapped like a dragon, they you know the whole thing. So that that was my commentary on it, that it was some you know sort of competition.
2: Shots were fired.
0: Shots yeah, were well, look, we can do a dark episode and it's better. Ha, 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 yeah. ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Checkmate. Uh, (laughs) Who got fired from a Star Wars trilogy? Ha ha ha. Yeah, it's uh (laughs) Yeah, we know what we're doing. Yeah, take that. So uh lots of fun there. Now let's get into the issue of you know the comm links. Because uh you know there there's there's a question of the stormtroopers listening in and I think that's because uh Queel had an old Imperial comm link, and they probably should have put it on a different channel. That, uh, you know, like this is really bad luck that the Imperials are operating on the same frequency, but uh, it does does get into some electronic uh, surveillance issues. And uh, I'm gonna take a stab at Gabby, you were the one who thought about this issue in great detail.
1: Yes, because I, was i actually went back through my crim pro um outline from (laughs) my days in, in law school um shout out to professor krauts um hopefully he is a nerdy guy and he's listening to this podcast um so thank you hopefully i get it right and he doesn't like come find me um but yeah so so this was very much i mean josh your explanation was probably the more reasonable one that they were on the same frequency. Um, I also was thinking of this Chris uh, Hallmark movie I had seen the other day where somebody turned somebody's <laughs> microphone on, and like their, their bad plot you know got yelled to all the people, and they were outed as the bad guy.
0: And at, the, um, and, and at the end, did the woman leave her high-paying job in the city to go b- move back to the small town and, like, yeah. run the post office? Or yeah, Some, something
1: okay. like that, something okay. like that. So, good, But good. that was what was in my mind. But then I was like, no, think like a lawyer and think that they actually, you know, wire, somehow magically wiretap wire their phones in, in the, you know, five seconds that they had interacted with them. Um, and so electronic surveillance is, is a huge thing. Um, and, and does need a warrant. Um, it's defined as the non-consensual acquisition of electronic um, or other surveillance um, device of the contents of any wire or electronic communication under circumstances in which a party to the communication has a reasonable expectation of privacy. So initially, up until 1967, there was a case called Olmstead, which said that the government could intercept phone conversations or electronic communications um, because they weren't entering the defendant's home and conversations weren't tangible things. Then a case comes along called CATS, which held that the Fourth Amendment protects any place where an individual has a reasonable expectation of privacy. So now under CATS, the the idea is that people have an objective reasonable expectation of privacy, i.e., wiretap of a phone booth, which was the issue in cats, um, is illegal because a person who's in a phone booth has a reasonable expectation of, that the words they're saying into the phone are not going to get you know blasted to the entire universe. And as, as my professor said, the only person standing outside the phone booth who would be able to understand them or intercept their conversation would be somebody who reads lips, which you don't assume that there's some rando out there when you're in a phone booth that reads lips. Um, so then more kind of on point, you actually have a deep Star Wars reference in, in another case from 2001 called Kylo v. U.S. Um, which says that um, you know, the, the court addressed the constitutionality of using technology to survey the int- inside of a defendant's home and the court found that physical invasion is not required to constitute a Fourth Amendment search if the surveillance reached would not have been attainable without entering the home. So again, this idea that people have an objective, um, reasonable expectation of privacy and so I think under this definition, um, you know and, and Harlan, in his concurrence um, states that a per, the, the reasonable expectation of privacy has to be one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable, right? So we're not going to kind of be going way outside the, the realms here, but certainly you would think that, that Mando and Quill, and especially Mando in this case, would have a reasonable expectation that what he's communicating to Quill is private, that they this is a private comm link, that is not getting tapped. So, because there's that reasonable expectation of privacy, triggers all of the um, Fourth Amendment sub warrant requirements. So, they would need the stormtroopers would need to obtain a warrant, and they would need to show that probable cause is just, is is there to believe that search is justified. Um, to describe the situation, why they need the evidence, to provide the time period for surveillance, and clearly none of that happens unless stormtroopers can just kind of magically pull warrants out of the air. Um, So the other issue kind of circling back to our first topic is how would martial rule play into this, right? This is clearly Navarre is clearly an area that never really had after the fall of the empire, never really had any sort of government or any sort of um, legal structure and now is under this kind of, imperial remnant rule, martial law, do they really need a warrant if they're, if they don't get a warrant and the search is technically illegal, who are, you know, who does Mando complain to? What, you know, clearly he's being shot at. So he, he really doesn't have time to go complain about the illegality of, of the search.
2: And I wonder whether, because the, when the biker scouts get this communication, it's, it doesn't seem like they're just monitoring comm traffic. They almost sort of are surprised by it. And I wonder if this is almost like, you know, it doesn't seem like it's a, an encrypted comm links, sort of like we see in resistance. So is this more like using a walkie talkie where I, you know, It's a stretch to say that you have an expectation of privacy when you're operating on open frequencies like that, that they could literally be used by anybody. And then I guess by extension, if these are old surplus Imperial comm links, then you know that the (laughs) the Imperials use this frequency and it would be hard to argue that you have an expectation of privacy operating on their network using their equipment that they wouldn't then listen that, that, that almost be like, you know, talking via, you know, p- on a police radio <laughs> or something yeah. like that and saying, well, I didn't know the police were going to be listening <laughs> in on this.
0: <laughs> you know, it's, it's like CD or a Marine radio that, you know, you're on a channel and maybe you should have picked a different channel. Right. And so I, yeah, there was, I don't see an expectation of privacy here. But the, I, thing,
1: the thing that I can't wrap my head around, though, with, I mean, that does seem the logical argument. What I can't understand is why, because it wasn't like the con link was given, you know, in the heat of the moment, right? It wasn't like he was like, okay, Quill, like, take off, like, run. Like, this was given before they even entered the Navarro, you know, town, right? The, the city. So why wouldn't somebody who's as skilled and and adept and knowing as as Mando, who's clear, you know, who's quote unquote legendary, why wouldn't he take that into account? I mean, that could be simply explained as a plot hole because, you know, Lord knows that Star Wars is full of plot holes, Um, but it it just seems like something that he would have considered, especially given that there was time to consider that.
0: I don't think so, uh, because uh, grief represented that the client had four stormtroopers with them, and that while there was an enhanced presence, they didn't understand the scope of the Imperial presence in Navarro. So they went in with bad intel, and if they had known that there was a heavy Imperial influence, they probably would have... Scrambled channels or or done other preventative measures to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. But they probably made a snap decision based upon the information that they had. And it didn't account for the number of imperials that were there using old imperial frequencies because they're still current imperial frequencies to those guys.
1: That is true.
0: So yes. Well, let's let's get into the issue of uh, whether or not our, our favorite Ugnaught, uh is either murdered or it was an attempted murder, because um, I have I have hope that that he's still alive. <laughs> he was shot, but he was sn- nestled up to Baby Yoda, and Baby Yoda healed him. Like that's my hope that we still get to hear Nick Nolte's voice as an Uggnot. But that's me. Uh, let, let's give it. Given your success
1: with with. IG11 back into existence. <laughs> this
0: is I, true. <laughs> I, I'm,
1: I'm gonna, I'm gonna rely on you as much as I think that Quill is dead, dead. Um, I, I am, I'm leaning on your hope.
2: Yeah, you're batting a thousand right now. So. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, they need to. Uh, he needs to be undead so he can fly the Razor Crest and drop in an IG11 to help turn the tide with all those stormtroopers because. Unless there's some more Mandalorians in hiding, they they're going to need a few more guns in order to <laughs> get out of this mess. But uh, yeah, let's let's talk about. I, I think we can knock this out quickly. If he's dead, that's murder. If he's not dead, it's attempted murder.
2: Yeah.
0: Now the the other issue of you know the speeder bike coming up and you know the the biker doesn't even like slow down. He just grabs. Uh, what could be the unconscious Baby Yoda. Um, Gabby, is that kidnapping?
1: I, I think so. You know, it, it, it's the unlawful taking of a person, here a child, um, which there, you know, that obviously, as we've talked about before, um, implicates a whole lot of federal and, and state rules. Um, but yes, it's, it's the unlawful taking um, for a nefarious purpose, to and and you have you know kind of the transporting element. I mean, it, it's so callous that it, it almost seems like a football interception, right? He just you know <laughs> scoops Baby Yoda up and just keeps going. <laughs> that that he's not even he even pausing. You know, as as we saw um, with with the other last attempted kidnapping of Baby Yoda, he didn't even have the time to make a dramatic speech to you know, allow somebody to save Baby Oda. Um so, so yes, I, I think you're definitely you, this stormtrooper has ticked all the boxes off of, of kidnapping and you know so you definitely have have that crime here.
0: Indeed. Indeed. And just the-
1: general rudeness. I mean why? Why do people keep wanting to kidnap baby
2: Yoda? Yeah, you gotta you gotta ruin my night or my morning like that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: he's the magical savior that can heal people and he he brings us all together so there's uh plus we have to have a reason for the bad guys to be bad and wanting to harm a cute adorable child that checks the boxes for being bad yeah these are bad dudes Mm -hmm. so uh yes a lot there. Uh, this A lot happened in this episode. And I. Uh, this is probably one of my favorite. I don't know if it's the favorite because so many of these are good. But this is this was a solid episode and the only cliffhanger out of all of them so far. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I think after next week, I, I think we'll be looking at these two episodes as one long episode and, and treating it like that. Mm-hmm. So I i fully expect i i love this episode i fully expect to collectively say that seven and eight are my favorite from the whole season
0: Mm -hmm. i i think that's a good prediction uh you know the the sin is still you know excellent and again so the reason why she got the kenobi series and uh you know there's a lot there um although i'm i'm a little concerned that the last
1: episode is airing after christmas and this episode ended on a cliffhanger i'm i'm very concerned for for my my baby yoda right now i'm very concerned
2: yeah it's going like- to be a long wait until season 2 and and that's even assuming that they debut a single episode at celebration that's still yeah 8 months Long, long time to be in withdrawal from Baby Yoda.
0: Mm -hmm. It's on demand. We can watch it whenever. There's plenty to look forward to. So (laughs) that's true. You know, again, first live action Star Wars, and we're loving it. And soon we'll get uh, the Clone Wars to come back. And very true. uh, Apparently, Cassie Andor is supposed to start filming, I think, in June. That's one of the things I read, but I don't know if that's correct. So again, no shortage of awesome Star Wars content coming out in addition to what we see with Rise of Skywalker. So future is bright. Mm -hmm. So with that, uh, Gabby, I want to thank you for taking the laboring oar on the outline. (laughs) This was exceptional research. So job well done.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, this is very awesome. Lots of great detail and legal analysis. So with that, uh, we're on Patreon. We have lots of cool things coming up. Uh, Thank you all for tuning in.